Welcome to the Spiritual Underground Podcast. This is Dan, and I'm coming to you from the woodshop at DTM Enterprises, our uh, little makeshift podcast studio here, and uh, where I get to make sawdust and do my woodworking, and we've turned it into a, a studio temporarily. We'll see what, what higher power has in store. Um, we're going to continue on this series tonight on uh, with telling one guy's story. Uh, we have a gentleman here who's uh, been instrumental in my recovery and, and in the community in general. Uh, we're going to do this, the what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now in interview form. So uh, we'll get to that here shortly. And I uh, want to introduce Quentin. He's uh, been a piece of our Tuesday night group for, for a little over a year now. And... Uh, once again, he's making some making some moves in the community. I'm sure that some of that will be be talked about in his service work and uh, the things that's important to him and his recovery. So uh, let's just get started, Quentin, and we'll start off with your sobriety date, and you can begin to tell your story from there. Uh, my sobriety date is June 20th, 2017. I uh, it was a beginning of a new new life I'd never expected to have. I was uh, crippled up in a basement, chose to, uh, the night before, I chose to eat a handful of uh, pain pills that I was prescribed after getting out of the hospital from a truck wreck and had my roommate go get me three-fifths of vodka and I was done with it. I was in a depression stage of mine and couldn't go nowhere, couldn't talk to nobody and I woke up. June 20th in the hospital again, getting my stomach pumped out, and today here I am, clean and sober and free of a lot of other addictions. So this hasn't wasn't your first try getting sober, so I think you came in, uh, well, tell, go back to uh, any attempts in, in your life. Let's start out. Uh, All right. Uh, well, when I was 17, I was court-ordered to a program in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a long-term inpatient you live there you go to classes 24 7 just about but anyways i was court ordered there for setting fire to a store because i was actively using lsd so the judge felt the need that i was 17 years old that i needed treatment and i had to complete the treatment to keep from getting a class a felony on my record and going to prison for 20 to 30 years so that was my i guess it wasn't my first attempt but it was my my invitation into a better life and i met a lot of cool people that i still talk to to the day i see some of them from when you were 17 you still yeah. see some of these people yeah a couple of them are still bus drivers in louisville they work for lg and e and i'm starting to get in contact with some of the old friends of mine that when i was 17 but uh i tried getting sober one other time it was in 2014 I was living out in LaGrange, Kentucky, and uh, just got out of prison. 2013, just got out of prison for my second time, and I was living in a camper with no electric, no water, behind my parents' house, and uh, thought I was going to try to get sober for my family. I wasn't trying to get sober for myself, and it didn't work out too good. But uh, let's see, when I was... I was born to a pretty good family. I'd say it wasn't too awful bad as a child. It was, uh, I guess you could call it, pretty troubled family. My dad, he was an active alcoholic. 
My mom, she was, when I was born, she didn't smoke weed anymore or drink anymore, but she used to. She was a real heavy overeater. So the addiction mindset and the addiction whatever was always in my family. I had uh, two older brothers. My oldest brother, me and him, were always pretty close until my parents got divorced. They got divorced when I was five years old. My older brother, he was more of a, uh, when my parents got divorced, he became like a father figure, or thought he was trying to. And everything I did, it didn't meet his approval and it built a hatred between me and him. Like uh, we just got real, real estranged from each other. And life was fun, man. It wasn't too bad of a childhood. I played baseball, played football, wrestled. When I was, uh, I think I was eight years old, my brother broke my wrist because he was mad. Our baseball team ended up going to the Little League World Series, or not the World Series, but the championship in Clark County, and his team didn't. So he got mad at me and broke my wrist so I couldn't play baseball no more. Wow. That's a little yeah, drastic we, for, a, for a sibling rivalry at that age. Yeah, we were always pretty mean to each other. Uh, when I was six, we... My oldest brother snitched on us to our grandma, well, tattletailed on us for doing some stuff. We were sitting there hitting in my grandparents' moonshine out in the woodshed, and he went and told on us, so we decided we were going to make a noose and hang him off the back porch. Whoa. And if it went for my grandma, he would have died. But, uh, yeah, my first taste of alcohol or drug was like when I was seven years old. My dad, he gave me beer, and he... Showed me where the moonshine was in the woodshed. And after I got a taste of that moonshine, man, it was like, I'm like Donkey Kong. I was wanting to go to Granny's house every weekend. <laughs> so that was about how old? About seven. Whoa. And then when I was 10 years old, my dad, every summer when I'd go down to Tennessee to go see him, or any time I was at his house, he'd let me drink with him when we were out mowing grass or do whatever. Yeah, so he was an al- active alcoholic from the time you can remember. Yeah. Probably didn't recognize that at the time. No. Not like today. No, I thought we were just having fun. My dad, he was kind of like the role model I wanted. I always wanted to be with my dad. Uh, I'd cause trouble at home. I'd set fire to my mom's house. I'd break the law, run away from home, and I was always running back to my dad's house or I was running to my grandparents' house. I wanted to be with my dad all the time. I just thought grass was greener on the other side, and it was just, I think it was my my addiction wanting me to do those choices. They were, I think it, now that I look back, I think it was my addiction having me do those things because I knew if I was going to go with my dad, I was going to be able to drink and smoke weed with him. Right, yeah. It basically uh, started figuring out that was an enabling environment, and that's what you wanted to do. So to already twice you've talked about um, – Catching things on fire, which uh, we also call arson. Yeah. Uh, I like how we like to uh, minimize the terms we use when we're talking about this stuff. I just set it on fire. Uh, so so you tried to set these, like, your mom's house on fire? Yeah, I was, I think I was about. On purpose? A couple times. I t- it was, I never really thought about burning her house down, but I was always a fire bug. Like the vinyl siding on the garage in the house, I'd always sit there and play fire, just play, put fire to it just to watch the plastic melt and burn. Hmm. And like I learned how to make monotop cocktails when I was 12 or 13 years old. And I threw them up in the air and a couple of them landed on the roof of her garage. So yeah, I've been, always been a fire bug pretty well. well that's an interesting point. 
I don't. Um, so pick it up again from there. Um, when you were teenager, when I was a teenager, I was just the young teenage football player. I joined the Oldham County football team, and I was just like the highlight of the team. I left tackle on offense, right guard on defense. And everyone loved me because I was just like a Mack truck, they called me. They said, yeah, I could go eat two Big Macs before a football game and still be able to play, and I could run through a line and get a quarterback like it was nothing. So I was kind of like a – I wouldn't say superstar, but I was a big part of the team. So I was always invited to the after-school after game parties, and I was just in the in crowd. I've never been in the in crowd before because – when I went to school, you had two classes of kids. It was Well, three classes of kids. You had the nerds, the preps, and the hoods, and I was always a hood. So it's like the preps, whenever I started playing football, the preps, they accepted me, and that's where all the big parties were at because their family had money, and they had the good booze, and they had the drugs, and I, I was in. And I was drinking every Friday night after a football game, wouldn't come home, started getting in trouble with the law for – Stealing alcohol from stores, from uh, public intox as a minor. Setting fire to Walmart because they busted me shoplifting beer. Well, here's another fire episode. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I was 17 when I did that, and that's when I got court-ordered into that treatment facility, which it was a six- to nine-month program, but because of my attitude and my refusal to – Except suggestions and consequences for my behavior, I uh, it took me, I think, like 15 and a half months to finish. And I had to stay there. It was either stay there and leave on good terms and do what they told me to do or go to prison for 20 to 30 years. And, of course, at 17 years old, I'm scared to death. Right. That's not a hard choice to make. No. But uh, at 18 years old, I got a job working in oil refineries. And that was the... One of the best things in my life ever happened, but uh, it was kind of a curse because it enabled my drinking and my smoking pot. I traveled all around the world working in oil refineries. Most of the time stayed here in America, North America continent. Most of the time we went to Canada and Alaska. We worked on the pipeline a couple times and then just all around North America. But uh, we worked 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. After we got off work, it was nothing but partying at the hotel, getting drunk, and I was 18 years old. Never had no consequences. And then I got a violation of probation whenever I came into town one time and I failed a drug test. Huh. So it was a violation of probation. From being out. So you were on probation, but you were out working in these oil rig or these, in this oil industry. Yeah. And they popped you when you came back home. Yep. And then uh, ended up doing a little six-month stint in jail the first time, and then the second time of violating probation for the same thing, he ended up revoking me for the rest of the term, which was I had another 90 days to go. So I went ahead and just served out all my time for probation off the shelf and lost that job working in oil refineries. No, I went back to work, but uh, when I went back to work, we did a job in Chicago, and I asked my crew, because I was a crew leader, I asked my crew, said, do you all want to work? Because it was on Thanksgiving Day. He said, you all want to finish this job up today and drive home afterwards? Or do you want to rest after working 16 hours and just drive home the day after Thanksgiving? They wanted to be home at least a little bit for Thanksgiving. Granted, we weren't going to get home until 9 o'clock at night. 
So we busted our ass. We cleaned up all the machinery and stuff, and we drove back down to Chicago. I had a little bit of weed in the glove box of the truck, and I asked my co-pilot if he would roll me up a joint because we kept me focused on the roads, kept me from going to sleep while driving. And he rolled me up my joint, but I didn't know that he sprinkled cocaine in it. Mm. And when he sprinkled that cocaine in it, man, I smoked my joint, kept on driving, and that was my introduction to cocaine. And I went through, I don't know, I guess it was about a nine-month stint of doing cocaine and crack. Went through, I'd say it was probably about twenty-three dollars to $25,000 in a little nine-month period. I lost my apartment. I was breaking into houses for a place to stay, became homeless, and that was at the age of 20 years old. Wow. And yeah, then I had a stint of cocaine usage that I keep forgetting about that was uh, on the tail end of high school. Uh, you know, I, of course, I do anything anytime, but uh, but I had a uh, that that reminds me of my little run on cocaine when I was a senior in high school. Right. That was one of the biggest lessons I learned in life is that I didn't like drugs. To me, I didn't consider weed a drug because it was more of a plant and it was just natural. But I didn't like the hardcore drugs, so in my mind, I always chose to stay away from drugs. Granted, I helped a couple friends make meth, and I helped them do some other stuff. But uh, drugs wasn't ever my thing. Alcohol was my go-to monster. Yeah. But 20 years old, I was homeless. I left Louisville, Kentucky, hitchhiking. Packed up all my stuff, had 25 bucks in my pocket. Left Louisville, Kentucky, hitchhiking. Didn't know where I was going to go. But I ended up down in Melbourne, Florida. And I was homeless there for about six months, I guess it was. I went through the whole winter out there. I was working on an Air Force base laying side, working my way up, getting an apartment. Got close to getting enough money for having an apartment. And I chose to hit the road again. Packed up my stuff, had $10 in my pocket. Started hitchhiking again. Went west to San Diego. Landed in San Diego on my 21st birthday. And San Diego was my safe haven, man. It was alcohol heaven. I could go over to Mexico and get cheap tequila anytime I wanted it. Navy guys, they'd come in, and you wouldn't have to buy a drop of alcohol. They'd always want to party with me. And uh, I was homeless on the beach in San Diego, sleeping in a tent. That was acceptable. Huh. At 21. Yep, at 21. And then uh, I just... Numerous years of traveling, train hopping, and hitchhiking. I've went, I've hit every state in the lower 48 states of America. I've never been to Alaska or Hawaii, but I went through southern Canada. Oh, you said earlier that you'd worked in Alaska. I did, but I've never been there, you know, like. Oh, on this trip, on this jaunt, this hitchhiking, yeah. train when, hopping when, thing. When, when you're working, you don't have time to go see anything. You just. Yeah, I get it. Working. But, uh. I train hopped and hitchhiked everywhere. Didn't I was pretty well running from myself. And everywhere I went, it was always the same shit because I always took myself with me. Yeah. And so all that was uh, train hopping and all that lifestyle included continuing to drink. What were you just catching off jobs here and there enough to make yeah, every, money every to buy time. something I, to drink and I've always been a good. I've always been a good worker, and every town I went to, every city I went to, I'd always go find jobs. I'm a hardworking guy. I like manual labor, and when you, you're good at manual labor and you work hard, people tend to put you to work. Yeah, there's and always something to do just about anywhere you go. Yeah, so that fed my drinking. 
I, uh, sometimes I would fly sign panhandling, and most of the time I was pretty good at that. Most of the time I would ask people for work. I wasn't really taking handouts on money, but they would always give me money anyways, which was pretty cool to me because I wouldn't have to work. Free $300 in a day, hell yeah. Yeah. But uh, it fueled my drinking, fueled my traveling. I got to see a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff I didn't want to see, a lot of harms to people that I've done. Well, I didn't really do, but I was a witness to a lot of harms to people. Train hopping, watching people getting thrown off of trains because they'd sit there and get drunk and try to mess with somebody else's woman. Or they'd get drunk and sit there and try to steal somebody's stuff, and they'd just get thrown off a train going 60 miles an hour down the tracks. And uh, it was a crazy life. Exciting. Adventurous. I wouldn't recommend it for anybody. And then uh, 2005, I came home to Indiana and went to work. I was trying to settle down. I decided I, I was old enough to quit hitchhiking and train hop and it's time for me to settle down so my sister let me move in with her and she she drank just like i did but she wouldn't drink hard liquor she'd drink beer i was always a hard liquor guy and i was living with her she was working second shift job i was working first shift job at a uh, stave mill making the boards for whiskey and wine barrels so it provided access to the bourbon that i always wanted to drink Every Christmas, we'd get a 55-gallon drum from the company of Brown and Foreman of Woodford Reserve or Maker's Mark. We'd sit there and just get a 55-gallon drum, and that was our Christmas bonus. But uh, that was my that was my job, my lifestyle. I, I had friends drinking. who worked at a, some barrel-making place, and they would get the drippings of some sort out of the bottoms of the barrels or some yeah. kind of thing where they would bottle that up and bring it right and it looked like hell it had stuff floating in it and all oh, that it but it, it was charcoal. free it was free and and it and it and it was potent potent yeah, oh, yeah i was trying to think of a word yeah it was definitely potent yeah we uh we would empty the barrel about halfway and then we'd fill it up with water and you roll around in the sun let it cook that alcohol out from that wood and usually uh it was just as good as bourbon again a couple days later Move. Soak up all that alcohol. But uh, in 2005, I was at work one day. It was on a Friday. I went over to a friend's house to go listen to music, hang out, and get drunk like I used to every weekend. I was trying to, uh, I guess you say, make out with his daughter. Really? I was trying to buddy-buddy up with him, but his daughter, she was kind of thick and hot. So yep. I was trying to have my way with her. Anyways, uh, I got drunk one Friday night. It was in, can't remember, but I think it was around in October of 2005. And I had these kids break into these houses for some guns. I had guys break into houses a couple times, but it wasn't ever for guns. It was for TVs and computers, stereos. This time it was for guns because... I had a guy that wanted to buy a couple shotguns off of me, and I seen this guy's rifle, and I wanted that rifle. It was a Smithfield's something. I forgot what kind of rifle it was. It was a crack shot. I know that. But one of them got caught and ended up snitching on me. I was at work in the stave mill one day, and the police came asking me questions. And I was nervous. I was like, no, I don't know what y'all are talking about. If y'all don't have no evidence, you need to leave my work. Y'all are costing my company money, blah, blah, blah. 
whatever, and I blew it off. Two weeks later, they came and arrested me. They surrounded my workplace, and there was nowhere for me to go, so they arrested me. Turned into a ten-and-a-half-month court battle, fighting a uh, Class B burglary here in Indiana. And uh, finally, after ten-and-a-half months, I just pled guilty just to get out of the county jail. I pled guilty, which I was guilty. But I pled guilty and ended up going to prison for two years. Wow. And was that was your, you were actually in prison for I, two years, or that was your sentence? I was in prison. My sentence was 10 years, suspend six, four, do two. So the most I could have done was four years, but I just did two years for good behavior. Right. Okay. And then... Uh, About how old were you when you was in prison? It was in 2005. I was born in 1978, so that'd be 88, 98, 27 years old. And you're 40 now. Yep. So I did uh, my two years in prison, got out, went back to work at the same place, doing the same thing, drinking, having fun, raising hell, riding four-wheelers. After you got out of prison? Yeah. Went right back to the... Yeah, my, my now boss... Now, when you were doing the stealing and doing or, or orchestrating this stealing or whatever it was, uh, that money for was... I mean, I'm sure that was for money, right? It you was for money. You were buying, taking stolen property and selling it and... It was for money, plus it was also to help a friend of mine manufacture methamphetamines. To help buy supplies for yes. that. Because I was getting a good kickback off of his okay. his stuff that he was doing. So I had my hand in a trade of manufacturing methamphetamines a little bit. And then, so it was just a hand-in-hand turn. One hand helps the other, Yep, I guess you call it. Well, my, I guess my point is, is I was wondering, you know, when we're... Usually we're not stealing and uh, getting the money, making money that way uh, till I pay bills. That's usually not our deal. Usually, at least it seems like, usually yeah. we got nefarious equals nefarious. You know, right. that's, we're, we're doing something that's, that's, that's uh, we're doing something illegal to continue our using or something like that. So that's yeah, what I, I was getting I, at. I seen my friend, he was able to make a, manufacture a lot of stuff and make, he was making a good chunk of change so i was making doing my part to put invest my resources in there to help him out so it could like a venture in. capitalist you yeah. was investing money in this guy's business <laughs> i get it hellfire but uh i got it i was doing that stuff still i was helping him make meth i was testing around in it Never really did like it. The only reason why I would do it was whenever uh, someone didn't trust me when I was trying to sell them some of the product. I'd sit there and do a little line with them. It didn't hit me like the go-to thing. It just made me feel like I was normal. It was weird. Did you call it meth? Yeah. Because I remember crank. doing it crank. Yeah, see, I didn't. It was done until later, and somebody had, uh, well, a girl had pulled me. We was at a biker bar here in New Albany, and she would pulled me to the side, and, uh, yeah, I always look young, and these girls would, these older girls would always flirt with me or whatever, you know, and uh, and so she pulls me in the women's restroom, you know, and I don't know, you know, hell, I'm all for whatever's getting ready to happen next, but she said, you want to do a line, and yeah. I said, yeah, and she cut out this stuff that just looked horrible, but you know, I was drunk and I wanted, Tastes to, yeah, too. yeah, and I wanted to do a line, yes, I did, uh, I didn't, it's not one of those episodes where you know I never did like a well, what is it. I usually would be like, somebody would hand me some pills and say, you want some of these? And I'd pop them in my mouth and go, what was that? 
Right. Uh, it's the same thing with this, although when that meth was a whole different story, and I, you know, and I knew it. I didn't know what at the time I was known it as crank. That's what. Right. The next day, I'm still awake and stuff, and I'm like, that was not cocaine. What was that? I was asking my buddy, and he's like, well, it's crank. I'm, you know, we're doing crank. Don't Better you, than cocaine. Like, you dumbass. Don't you know anything? Right. And uh, I was like, well, hey, man. I like that stuff because it let me drink, you know, it put me up in that hyperspace where I could drink like I wanted to, you know. That was always, whenever I did, and I know it's not about me, it's about you, but we converse here. Uh, whenever I, most of the time when I was doing drugs, what I was doing is looking for things that allowed me to drink the way I wanted to drink. I did not like drugs that put me under the table. Like after a while, marijuana was no good for me because all I wanted to do is take a nap when I smoked right. some dope. Uh, so I stopped doing that. You know, I wanted to do things and that's, Crank and meth, man, that was something that uh, certainly allowed it. it, uh, it, it, it. Dirt, I can't even think about the, what the, I'm, I'm at a loss for the word, but it did. It, it, it promoted my alcoholism. It allowed me yeah. to drink the way I wanted to drink. Yeah, every time I did it, it, it I didn't. reason why I didn't like it is because it interfered with my drinking. When I was, when I was drinking, I was a heavy drinker. I, I've always been able to drink a lot. I could drink a lot of people under the table, which is nothing to be proud of. All my friends thought was something to be proud of. I, I'd be closing bars down, but when I was, whenever what very little I did do meth, it was uh, I would drink like I normally would, but I wouldn't get the feeling, and I didn't like that. It took the uh, feeling away. Yeah, so you weren't getting the drunk feeling. See, that's the uh, yeah, because the drunk feeling is what made me pass out, right? You know, right. eventually, and so I didn't want that. You know, I, I wanted to be drinking, but I wanted to keep going. Yeah. And uh, well, what I always went for was whenever I was drunk, it would give me energy, and I would want to sit there and start wanting to do crazy shit, drunken driving. I got six DUIs, and drunken driving, drunken running four wheelers, tractors, everything. I'm just a crazy man when I'm drinking. Yeah. All right, so we did uh, what? What we do? We come home from prison and went right back into the drinking and uh, doing. And then started. Next thing I know, I start my sister. She calls my my family calls me hobo. I got the nickname of hobo because when I got out of prison, I came home, came back home, went to work doing the same stuff and everything. Four months later, uh, they're trying to put me back in prison for violation of probation. I skipped state. I uh, start hitchhiking, train hopping again, doing my thing. I'm on the run. Knowing I got a warrant out for me, but I'm still doing all this stuff. So I'm running around the country. I start going to Spokane, Washington. And that's like one of my favorite towns in the country. Beautiful city. And out there, meth was real, real popular. So was uh, heroin. I didn't like either one of those. But then one of my friends introduced me to pain pills. And I liked pain pills, but it, again, it took away the feel-good feeling of my drinking. Yeah. And alcohol gave me what I wanted. For some reason, I have no idea what it was, but alcohol is the only thing that I would try all kinds of stuff. But alcohol gave me that feeling that I wanted. Right. Yep. Well, we are all, you know, people are wired for a particular uh I don't know. I've heard. I can't. I'm far from a scientist, but we have receptors that are wired to receive certain things. And why you like that? And you know, because if I could have anything, it'd be a bucket of pain pills, right? Right. Uh, if I was going to pick, you know, and that's one of the things about like when we talk about. And I've heard people, say, you know, if we had this stuff spread out on a table in front of us, and we had, you know, um, 
If you had bourbon, uh, and case you had pills, of I'm bourbon over bourbon. here, a pile of cocaine, a bunch of pain pills. Uh, you know, what would you pick out of that pile? And everybody has their thing, you know, that they yeah. would get. I heard one guy say, "Well, I would take the." Uh, what he said, I would take the cocaine and sell it and buy a whole lot more bourbon. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Good man. But in 2009, out in Spokane, Washington, I met a lady. She was same age as me. I was in a hotel with my best friend. He, uh, Me and him, we took a road trip out there from Louisville, Kentucky. He took his student loan money and rented a car, and we took that rental car. And drove out to Spokane, Washington. Best trip we ever, I ever had in my life. I loved it, man. But uh, got out there, and we were staying in a hotel for two weeks. He blew all his money on it, and I wasn't doing anything to make any money. So the last week, I ran into my, I didn't know at the time, but she would, turned out to be my daughter's mom. Huh. But we ended So you up, met her in Washington. Yeah. Spokane, Washington. We we had sex. She went home, did her thing. She packed up her stuff and I told her I was like Where I don't was she have, from? She's from Spokane, okay, Washington. That was home to her. I uh I told her I ain't got nowhere to go, pot to piss in, but she's more than welcome to tag along as she wanted to. And she chose to tag along with me. So we were homeless in Spokane, Washington through the winter time of two thousand nine and two thousand ten. And when winter was over we came back to southern Indiana. In Louisville, Kentucky, and we slept in a tent. We were homeless. I was still drinking. She, she was, to me, she was used as for her money. She got a disability check, so that was seven hundred and twenty dollars of money that I could use for alcohol, and that's what I did. I, I used her money for alcohol, and we were homeless, sleeping in tents and boxcars. She got a check every month, which I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't care. It was fueling. It was giving me what I needed. I didn't have to work so hard. She was uh, getting like a disability check or some kind of social security or something yeah, of that nature? Yeah. So I didn't have to work so hard on getting money to drink. She was providing my alcohol. She she loved watching me get drunk. I was never violent or aggressive toward her. I never disrespected her. And I was a pretty good fella. She she had fun with me, it seems like. And then uh, I drug her through hell for the next four years. She... uh Rode with me all the way along. We were sleeping in boxcars, sleeping on trains, hitchhiking, doing our thing. And she, we went up to Pittsburgh. I ran into a guy that was a storm chaser doing tree work. His company was called Nature Boys Tree Service. We uh, went up to Pittsburgh to go chase a nice storm that hit Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I started working for him. He was a bad heroin addict, but he put us in a hotel room and... He paid me commission for every job that I, you know, sold for him. He'd pay me a certain commission, and we drank till the bars would close every night. Wouldn't have to get up till nine, ten o'clock. Start go knocking on people's doors. So, to me, that was my. That was, I don't know, I was living high on the hog back then. Yeah. In a way, but we were still pretty well homeless. Besides staying in the hotel, he ended up overdosing and dying. Wow. So that all ended pretty abruptly. Yeah. And yeah. that was in 2000. Death will, have a, death will have that effect on things. Yeah. His family took everything and just gave us our, we, we ended up getting a $500 bonus, I guess, for him dying. I don't know what it was, but I spent that on alcohol. We ended up getting bus tickets, come back home. We came back home to Indiana. We. Me and, my, me and uh, Rosie, my old lady. Okay. She was still with me at the time, and 
let's see, I guess it was uh, 2011, we got a trailer in Indiana, southern Indiana in Sellersburg, and I started to straighten up. I, I'm getting older, I'm getting older, and I'm starting to realize, hey, it's time for me to settle down and start trying to do right. I start weaning back on my drinking a little bit, but it wasn't nothing real big. I quit drinking so much hard alcohol, started folk drinking 30 packs of beer a day, thinking that was a change. Right. At least I'm not drinking whiskey. Yeah, that's the way I was looking at it. I wasn't drinking whiskey no more. I was drinking a 30-pack of beer a day instead. And uh, I got her pregnant. One day she comes to me and she says, I think I'm pregnant. So we get one of those cheap home pregnancy tests, and this shows that she is. And then I send her to the doctor, and they do a real pregnancy test, and she's already four months pregnant, evidently. Wow. And that uh, that was a... Surprise! That was like it. I don't know what you would call it. It threw a twist in my loop. Anyways, uh, I started focusing on trying to be a good dad. I wanted to always be a good dad, and I was a good dad. I still am. But uh, my daughter was born in March of 2012, and that's when I told I told myself and I made a vow. She'd never see me drink a drop. She never seen me drink a drop, but. Every night after I put her into bed, I'd sit there and be drinking a 30-pack of beer. I was working that court. Didn't mean you stopped drinking. You just didn't let her see you. Right. And I'd sit there. I was working at a rock quarry at the time out in Cordon, Indiana. And it paid good money, had good benefits. Then I got a DUI and lost that job. Hmm. Can't drive a pit truck, which I didn't know that. You had to have a license to drive those pit trucks. Anyways, I lost that job, and we lost our place to live, and we were sleeping in my car for about, it wasn't but two or three weeks, we were sleeping in my car. We went over to over Louisville one Sunday, because Indiana don't sell beer on, don't sell alcohol on Sundays at they the time. They didn't. Yeah, they do now. Yeah, they didn't. But we were over in Louisville, Kentucky to get alcohol, and uh, I got stopped by the police and got busted on that warrant from when I was running from Indiana in 2007 so here it is five years later and i'm getting busted so the police are taking my dot ripping my four-month-old daughter Woo. out of my arms and taking me to jail hardest thing i ever went through in my life and i went into prison did finished up my last year in prison in indiana it's still again you do have your time i had two years left to do so they had me do my year i went back and i went into by choice, I went to a drug treatment program while I was in prison and started thinking I'm going to straighten up. Got out of prison, and I stayed sober. But I wasn't going to meetings. I wasn't doing anything to – I was going to church, though. I thought Jesus was going to save me. Yeah. You know, I he thought ch church was going to save me. I was doing everything I could. I was doing – I thought I was doing really good, but I was miserable inside. And I couldn't figure it out. I was getting miserable. I was getting grumpy. I was getting hostile toward my own mom, my stepdad. They were nice enough to take me in. They were nice enough to let me, when I got out of prison, come live in their camper so I didn't have to stay in a homeless shelter after I got out of prison. And then my stepdad died in 2000. I got out of prison in 2013. My daughter, I got to get out in time to see my daughter turn one year old. So that was cool. She never seen me drink a drop. Up to that day, she never seen me drink a drop after that either, but she's seen me drunk. And she's told me that, Daddy, you're more fun when you are when you come over to Grandma's. 
and I, I, she could just tell a difference in my attitude that I wasn't fun when I was sober. Interesting. And it made me thinking, but then my stepdad passed away in 2013, and I went off the deep end, and I was pretty well trying to drink myself to death. It was four to six-fifths of bourbon, vodka, anything I could get a hold of. If I had the money, I was at four to six-fifths on average every day. That's amazing. Had my nephew living with me. That would have killed me. Probably would have killed a lot of people. Should have killed me, but it never did. I don't understand it. But, uh... 2014, I decided I was going to try to get sober again. I, I lost my apartment. I was homeless in Louisville. One of my friends seen me, and he said, I'll take you in, but you got to stay sober. You got to go to AA. You got to do your thing. And for some reason, it took me two days to think about that. I chose to sit there and be homeless in the woods, getting ate up by mosquitoes in dead heat of summer instead of going accepting a nice $250,000 home to live in, having my own bedroom and having a job and everything. So finally I went to his house and got a job, got sober, which was crazy getting sober. The first week was hell. But I started going to AA like he requested, started doing good. Got to nine months sober and started drinking again. He threw me out of his house because he didn't want me drinking, but he threw me out of his house, and I was homeless again. Started hitchhiking and train, well, I wasn't train hopping anymore, but I started hitchhiking, and every time I would come home, I'd come home to my sister's house. It was out in southern Indiana, out in the country. Country style, country lifestyle was always my thing. I loved it, get to go hunting and fishing. Getting drunk was always a normal, acceptable part of life, and that was just where I belonged. Never had electric, never had running water. I always chose to live the hobo lifestyle, even though I had a two-bedroom trailer. Every time I was home, I always, I never would get nothing turned on. But, uh... I mean, once you've lived in that other state, what's the sense in, uh, you know... Yeah, you learn how to survive. I mean, I, yeah, I can survive extra with money. the money. Why well, pay for that? Yeah. And it was just... A simple way of life. Didn't have to re worry about my cell phone being charged up. Didn't have to worry about my computer, TV, or anything. I, it was just a good, simple life. Yeah. And to me, that was enjoyable. I really did enjoy it. But I didn't get to enjoy it sober. I was always drinking. I started making my own moonshine. My friends turned around. They really enjoyed my moonshine. Besides, they always wanted me to dilute it down to 100 proof. And I wouldn't do it. To me, moonshine was supposed to be 195 proof. And that's the way it was going to stay. If they wanted to dilute it themselves, they could get their own spring water and dilute it themselves. But I was drinking about a gallon of 195 a day by myself and giving my sister a gallon of it a week for her and her husband. Her husband started uh, progressing in his drinking, too. I can't pronounce him an alcoholic or an addict or anything, but I could give him a quick test and probably say he'd be just like me. But uh, my sister, she actively drinks and she started asking me if I thought I might have a problem and to me that really that pissed me off it made me mad because she's my sister me and her were good drinking buddies but she seen me go not eating and I'd still sit there and drink a gallon of moonshine a day and she's like I think you might have a problem yeah I guess so and we don't ever want to be told we have a problem that's no. the last thing in the world that our disease wants to hear so then I left home and came to Louisville, Kentucky, 
I ran into an old childhood friend of mine, and his mom was gracious enough to let me go stay in her basement. This was in 2017. She let me come stay in her basement, get a job, and I was paying 300 a month rent for her basement. I was paying for utilities, and he started staying with me. He he actively used heroin and whatever that fake meth stuff is they do around town. I don't know what it is. But I was okay with that. I never got into it. And I started working in Louisville. I was doing good, getting up in life. Started, I got me a truck, got me a trailer, started doing my own landscaping and lawn care on the side of my full-time job on the weekends. So I was busy seven days a week. And I was drink. I cut back on my drinking because I was always so busy seven days a week to where I couldn't drink four to six-fifths anymore. I was drinking two or three. And I always kept a fifth in my truck while I was working doing landscaping and lawn care. And the way I... Way I did so much work on the weekdays was I paid him to help me, but I would pay him by buying him his drugs. I'd give him a hundred dollars day cash, but I also paid him a half gram of drugs, of his heroin, and to me that was cheap labor. Got a lot of work done, and uh, it was at the end of May. It was Labor Day weekend, whatever holidays in in May, Labor Day, Memorial Day. I don't know, but uh, Memorial two, Day is May, 2017. My sister asked me if I wanted to come over and hang out and meet up one of her friends to go make out. And I was like, hell yeah, I was all about it. And I was ready to get some get laid. And I was already drunk at work. At work, I, my boss, he, my supervisor knew that I drank, but our foreman didn't know that I drank. My supervisor was okay with it. I'd sit there and drink a fifth at work until lunchtime. Then at lunchtime, go get another fifth along with some White Castles. And... That rest me, lasted me the rest of the day until I got home. But uh, I, I left work early that day. I was already half drunk. Went and got me another fifth and started drunk driving through Louisville to uh, Indiana, to Cordon, Indiana. Must have been in a blackout because I don't remember driving through Louisville. I remember showing. I remember my truck was overheating in Cordon, Indiana whenever I got off the exit. So I must have been reaming on it pretty hard. I had an 85 S10. Got there, I remember picking up my sister and her friend. We were hanging out, running around together. And then on my way to taking her home to drop her off, we we done dropped off her friend. We done did our thing. And on her way to drop her off, and I guess I was in a blackout because I don't remember, we ended up flipping over. We flipped over seven times on the highway on the way to her house. And we were step flight. We were flown in helicopters back to... Louisville Hospital. We, I, it was a to the U of L Trauma Center. Yeah, it was a real, real horrible wreck. They had to cut us out with the jaws of life. They cut my truck in four different sections to get us both out. And uh, I've I, seen pictures of that truck. It was it was a horrible ordeal. I don't see how anyone could live through it. The tow truck driver, he don't know how. And he thought me and my sister both died. The police, they thought we both died. And my sister, she talks to the paramedics to this day now. Cause she's back to work at the nursing home she used to work at. And it, they can't believe that we're still alive. And that was the beginning of a permanent mindset that something has to change. That was, was May of 2017. May of 2017. I was laying in the hospital and knew something had to change. I was on a morphine pump, of course, after being in a coma for a week. But something had changed. I got released to uh, 
released back to my roommate's mom's house, went back home. And that's whenever, when I went back home to the house, I was back down in the basement, but I was on a walker. Couldn't walk upstairs, couldn't do anything. I had that depressed, poor me, poor me attitude. Nobody knows what I'm going through. I got a metal rod in my femur, got metal plate in my face. I had to reconstruct the left side of my face. Had to reconstruct the back of my head from where a tree limb was stuck in it and uh, messed up my hip. But anyways, I got really depressed real, really quick. And three days after being home, I told my roommate to go get me three-fifths of vodka. And to him, that was normal for me because before the wreck, I, was, I always drank about two or three-fifths after I got off work. So to him, that was normal. But what he didn't know is when he went to go to the liquor store for me, I drank, I, I ate a handful, handful of morphine 100s and my what other pain pills they had on me that they were oxycodone or something like that. I ate a handful of those at the same time. And then I chased them down with a two-fifths of vodka. Next morning I came to, I was at the hospital with my stomach being pumped out, feeling like shit. And that's when I decided I'm done with it and went, got sober. Just went and got sober. No, it wasn't just <laughs> went and got sober, but that was the end of end of everything. That's when you had your moment, that the moment that. of clarity of when you said, hey, man, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it was. But uh, I, I caught up my friend Mikey. He works on the railroad. Me and him, we went to a couple meetings and stuff, and I met my sponsor back in 2014. I think it was 2015 at a specific AA meeting a few years before this. He was, I think it was. I can't yeah, remember. it was. And it's okay. I, I just full disclosure here. But, and it uh, is part of, uh, part of one of some of the thing I'm doing with this podcast. Uh, I've got my sponsees in here most of the time because they're easy to talk to and they're, they're available for me to practice this podcasting thing. So just in the full disclosure, he's talking about me. I sponsor Quentin, <laughs> but, uh, I met him and I really liked him. And I, one day in two, I guess it's probably, August of 2017, probably, I think it was, or the end of July, I was too scared to ask him to be my sponsor, so I sent well, him a message fr- on Facebook. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, come through Facebook. But I seen something in his face, his attitude and stuff. He was happy-go-lucky. You could see it in his eyes. He had something I wanted, and I wanted that. I've always been a happy-go-lucky type of person, but I was always covering shit up. I was covering my true feelings and my true thoughts. I was always angry on the inside or depressed or something, and it wasn't really happy. I was just playing it off. And he accepted being my sponsor. And since then, it's been uh, it's been an amazing journey so far. I'm uh, so we'll walk back through just a little of that because uh, that does get to the point. Like your old your story, I've heard before, but couldn't necessarily talk it right. But right. I've been a part of your life since that point. Since that that since. Uh, like I said, I, and I do have that, but I know exactly when it would be if I had my phone and would look in there. I, I always keep track of like when we first meet and when uh, like our first, so that I can kind of make sure we're staying on a on a step work timeline. But anyway, you were working, you were living at this guy's house because uh, we I would come over and pick you up and we'd go do step work. Uh, yeah. And and so p- let's walk a little slower through that process of getting the work. Yeah, and stuff a and big part of it was also was while I was living at that guy's house, I was drawing short term disability from my job that I had before my truck wreck. And they were going to let me come back to work as soon as doctors released me to come back to work. Short-term disability ran out 
90 days later or three months later, and I didn't know that. But when it ran out, I couldn't afford to pay bills. And the, my friend's mom was selling the house anyway, so I had to go be homeless, sleep in a tent next to I-65 down in south of Louisville. Going you borrowed a tent and a sleeping bag from a guy? Yeah, borrowed a tent and a cot and a sleeping bag from a guy and went and stayed in a tent. I was homeless. But uh, I couldn't Your sponsor hardly, just let that crap happen, didn't he? Couldn't hardly ever walk. <laughs> I couldn't walk very far anyways. I was just fresh off of a walker, fresh off the energy. Yeah, yeah. You'd had a walker, a four-legged walker. And that wasn't, to me, that was just camping. My, my, that was, oh, I'm just camping. I told everybody I was just camping. camping and that out. comes from your old hobo lifestyle and your, your, your homeless life is that's what you just did. And I had a little bit of issue with that because it sounded like to me and I still did. And I, and I won't, I'm not going to back off of those thoughts from that point in time, but, uh, it, it did come natural to you. So it was, it was a term that you were comfortable using. Uh, your sponsor saw that as more of something like, uh, you know, that you were camping sober. You, you shared that in a meeting once that you was camping sober. And, and I really took a little bit of, uh, uh, I had a little problem with that statement because it sounded like uh, like we was having fun, and you were on a downhill slide. Yeah, that was getting worse, progressively worse. Oh, yeah. Even though you were not drinking, you were still getting you were progressing to to in to, in, in the direction we don't want to go. Was right. from having a home to not having a home, and then a particular person came into your life, right? Right. One of my friends that uh, when I got out of prison, and you can name them. When I got out of prison my second time, I met first him. Names. I started doing homeless outreach, and I met this guy named Gene. And uh, he started a homeless outreach organization here in Louisville, which is a great organization. But we were serving doing homeless outreach. I met him when I was trying to get sober a few years before then. This was six years ago. And uh, I was talking to him. He knew I was, he, he knew I was homeless in a tent. And I was in my tent for probably, I, I think it was like two weeks. And finally he asked me, he's, he bought him a building in West Louisville, which is like the worst dangerous part of Louisville, supposedly. But he bought a building the year before that and has been doing repairs and maintenance on it, trying to get it up and going and turn it into a sober living halfway house for homeless people or anyone who wanted to try to get sober and get a second chance in life. So he said, hey, man, I got a place for you if you want to take it. And at first, I told him I'd have to think about it. They're funny. There's another one of those things when somebody hands you a gift. Our first, our first uh, instinct is to decline it. No, I'm okay. Yeah, right. And I'll, you know, a roof over my head or out here in this tent with winter coming. Let me get back to you. And I'm still crippled up. Yeah, can't hardly walk. But uh, I thought I was able. I thought I knew how to. Be sober and be homeless. I've never been sober homeless before, so I don't know why I thought for some reason. I, th I guess it was my alcoholic thinking, man, made me. I, I think it was that. It's uh, our inability to accept help. Yeah. that's. The, I think that's the root of this is that we, we tend to have this I got this thing right. and I can handle it. And I will man, I man, I'm still managing my life. The whole, uh, right. you know, the opposite of step one, section B. Yeah, my, my man, life is unmanageable. My no, management gets me in a tent every time. But uh, so you did I, move into that place. I did move in that place two weeks. It was only a couple of days after he asked me. I moved in. Moved in a couple of days later. He came and picked me up, and gave me my room, and 
I stayed sober. And my so we started doing the step work when you were living with the with the friend. Yes. In the early part, and then that little stint, we did a little step work while you were working. But then right. we started meeting up down at Gene's place. And right. Doing, and well, what, well, or, my sponsor, he was going to fire me when I was in my tent because I wouldn't get honest with myself and say that i was homeless i was choosing to say that i was camping out and i wouldn't look at the real issue that the dire circumstances you were in yeah i didn't think i thought i played it off like it was a joke because i've always it was always a joke to me before but i refused to look at it and he was gonna fire me for it anyways uh i was down there in the west end when i when i first got there it was horrible i didn't like it Never lived around that many black people in my life. Never been in that type of area in my life. I ch- I knew every city that I went to hitchhiking. What part of town not to, I'd always find out what part of town not to go to. And now I'm living in that part of town that You've I don't been avoiding to. all your life. Yeah. And it's been a journey. It's uh, I'm 16 months sober now. And I'm running a halfway. Ha- I'm running this halfway house that my friend let me come stay at. We got nine other guys staying there, different levels of their sobriety from all sorts of drugs. I want to slow um, you down just a little bit though, and bring you back. And it's only you know, like I said, I want to. Um, you started working the steps though, because that's what actually got you there. So I want to spend some time in that. You know, you okay. I, I remember you know you went through and did a four step. Uh, <laughs> And spent the appropriate amount of time working through that. Yep. Uh, you and I went and did a fifth step together. Yep. Uh, the night before Thanksgiving. Yeah, it was. It was the night. Yeah, it was. It was the night before Thanksgiving of two thousand seventeen. I came home and fixed Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. And served some homeless people with some Thanksgiving dinner. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. that was the turning point. That was where uh, my urge to drink alcohol. I, right across the street from my bedroom window is a liquor store, and every night I would get pissed off. Think about setting fire to the whole west side of town there is this fire again sniping people I, I i hated that liquor store but then after doing my fifth step with my sponsor thanksgiving night i realized that my urge to drink was gone so you got the relief in the fifth step that most yes. people that, that we hear yeah, it about wasn't no, so often. it wasn't no big aha moment or no big flash of lightning or anything it was just that urge to drink was gone yeah um then I remember, uh, you know, we do the eight step work, we do the prayer work, and we and that forgiveness work that we do there. Yep. That's a that's a, a fairly uh, tedious, I would say. I don't that's I don't really like to use those words on it, but it's a it's a it's a it moves at the pace that it moves, and and it's a one a day thing. So, uh, and then you got into some amends. Yeah, I've I've done a few amends. My I didn't the guy that let me stay at his house that wanted me to be sober that. Came and picked me up from the woods in Louisville. He wanted me to stay sober, and I was nine months sober at his house and then started drinking again. He uh, he was my first amends. My second amends was was actually to my mom, I believe it was. Yeah, but that was the most uh, that was the so far the most rewarding amends that I've done so far. I think it there's was, been a few in between there, personally. I'm pretty sure, but... Uh... Well, there was a few. There's been a few attempts, but no one's called me back on a few of them. Right. Well, we took our. We did what we could to to make our to make the amends. But there was a couple other ones I remember. Some, but I I, I mean, it doesn't really matter a lot the exact yeah. details. But I do recall. 
Uh, and then, like you said, you know, the the, the requirement in ISEP is that we'd be willing to make the amendments, right? right? So if, uh, yeah, right, we had a few people that just refused to hear your amends and, and didn't want to participate. And part of our thing there is, is that we allow that to happen. Part of our amends to those people yeah. is to abide by their will, right. by their wishes, and because uh, we don't want to force our amends on anybody. Uh, but the amends to my mom, it was... Uh, it was it was well it was it was kind of a funny situation. I was catching a bus from Louisville to Lagrange to go meet up with her that morning, and the bus broke down, and it was I was getting kind of shitty about it, but uh, a friend of mine that kind of pissing in your old weedies and mad because yeah. things aren't going your way, and here I am on this good deed and right. But it was just actually, I think it was just time for, for my higher power told me I needed to pray on it a little bit more and do some meditating. And that's what I did, and it all worked out. Another bus came and picked us up, and uh, I got out to LaGrange, did my uh, amends to my mom, and it was accepted well. And now our relationship is, it's its funny because all the stuff that I did to my mom, my parents growing up, all the stealing money, breaking into their house, destroying their property setting fire to her house and stuff all the stuff that i've done to her i understand when she says that it's going to take a long time to build that bridge of trust back yeah she can't believe anything i have to say but it's going to take a while and now we're actually starting to build a relationship again and that's the that's one of the cool ass cool parts of doing an amends yeah so i'm gonna lead you around a couple little places i remember uh because I said uh, that I always want to talk about people's miracles, but there's also some other points about your recovery that I definitely want to make sure that we talk about. Uh, one of the first miracles I remember, and this has happened a couple of times with other people too, that I, that one that really strikes me is that it had been quite a while since you had seen your daughter when you and I first met or, you know, when we yeah. first started working this steps, not when we first met, we met a couple of years ago before that. And then like this uh, was within like a couple of weeks of us starting to work the steps you had an opportunity to meet up with your daughter yeah. at a lake and uh, I believe or a park here locally. Uh, why don't you talk about that for just a second? Yeah, I chose uh, alcohol to me. I chose to not have anything to do with my daughter because alcohol is more important. And I, always, I made yeah. that. Value. And I'll take an umbrage to the point that you chose that alcohol had you. Alcohol you think you chose it, but it really did. Yeah, alcohol uh, had me. Alcohol had the joystick called Gwent, but I didn't and it want to drove break, him away from being able to see his daughter. I didn't want to break that promise that I said I'd never let her see mm. me drink. So it was either not see her, not see her or get sober. And I wasn't willing to get sober. So alcohol had me in its grip nice and tight. But it was a four year, four years. Exactly. I, I left when I was two years, when she was two years old, I left LaGrange drinking four to six fifths of bourbon or vodka, gin, whatever I could get a hold of a day. And uh, this was around the time when my stepdad passed away. But uh, I was I was drinking instead of spending time with her. And four years. She lives with your mother. She lives with my mom. But four years without my daughter having a dad, she's like she pretty well forgot about me. And yeah. then it yeah it wasn't very long after starting to work through the steps. I was given the opportunity to go to a park here in eastern part of Louisville to. Uh, Go spend the day with her. And pretty much out of the blue. Yeah, it just, was just out just of the blue. happened. It did. Yeah, I remember that. And that does, that strikes me. And uh, and it struck me then that uh, I, and, and I, 
the same things happen for me, you know, whenever I started working the steps, you know, these miracles that I talk about happened in my life, uh, uh, started happening when I see it now, man, it get chills when I watch right. a guy for no reason whatsoever. I mean, we know what the real reason is, but higher power takes, starts taking control. And I know it's a attaboy that says, okay, you're headed in the right direction. You're, I, I talk yeah. a lot about being uh, aligned with my true North. And when I start getting aligned, uh, I get signs from the universe, from higher power, that lets me know that I'm in the right direction. And those are the right. kind of things that, that happen for us. Uh, another thing I want to definitely touch on for sure, uh, and, and again, I'm not trying to... Uh, well, if, is there anything else in that in that neighborhood you want to talk about? Well, I, I know that ever since uh, I've been sober and since I've started doing the deal, I haven't missed a day yet of being able to uh, FaceTime with my daughter. I get to... FaceTime with her 15 minutes a day. Yeah. And that's been a good blessing and a big part of my sobriety right there. Yep. And he shares those. A lot of times we'll share those screenshots with us and we'll yeah. get to see pictures of uh, of Dorothy playing and smiling and talking to her to Quentin on FaceTime, which is, yeah, that is a miracle too. Um, I know that service has been a place where you're, uh, for and it is for a lot of people, but it's a place where you actually hang your hat. It's something, and you actually found a, you know, a, a, without, a, well, I just will put some words in your mouth to begin with. Service was actually something that you had found even back when you were drinking and still using and trying to, like, make these attempts at recovery was something that came natural to you even then. Even, yeah. but, but you couldn't really apply the gift at a level that you can today because of back then you were still right. hooked on, on, on the sauce, and that was right. your number one thing. Like we all know, we can't really... Uh, the, that that good work at that works that we can do that actually is beneficial to society just doesn't work when you're pouring liquor or dope in you whatever your thing is or both. So um, so you uh, let's see here you you started working at the or you know you came to live at the recovery home and that opened the doors to some service for you it again. Did. So soon, start start as soon as I got released from the doctor that I could do some more physical stuff I was able to walk around and stuff. I started helping out with that organization that I used to go serve the homeless people at the waterfront. A lot of times I was sauced before, and that was a, that was a whole a whole new thing because the whole organization changed. They separated from everybody else, from the other organizations, and they went on their own thing. So I started doing homeless outreach, which I really enjoyed because it's uh, homelessness was a big part of my life. 17 years of homelessness, not counting the times of going to prison, but... Uh, a huge chunk of my life so i feel that helping the homeless just being a friend just sometimes it's just being an open air and being a friend to these people is sometimes the best thing that a person can do but uh every sunday and monday i get to on mondays is the biggest part is there's a lot of homeless people staying in abandoned houses we call them abandonments and then there's some staying in tents in the West End. There's no services at all in the West End for homeless people. They can go downtown or to the East End of downtown to get services, but there's nothing in the West End. We, on Mondays, we open up our day room of the recovery house. I mean, we open up our day room so these homeless people can take showers. And it gives me the opportunity to build Do the positive laundry. relationships with these homeless people, with the community. And it's, it's breaking the... Uh, racial tension in the neighborhood because now i'm like a staple in the west end these people i can walk around anytime day or night and i'm so they come down they can wash their clothes 
Not anymore. Not we anymore. don't let them wash okay. clothes because it's too expensive. But okay, yeah. so but they get their they can get a shower. And we we if y'all offer, have donations, they may be able to pick up some clothing or something of that nature if that, it's yeah. available at the time. Yep. Uh, maybe get a bite to eat. And we help them sign up for food stamps. Help and them housing. see whether kind of services, social yeah. services, could be available to them. We have health department come down and do vaccinations. And you also cater to some uh, homeless pets in the area too, we right? Do. We do. We even got some that a uh, couple guys that were. A couple guys that were homeless at the, one of the camps here in Louisville, they're actually in the recovery house now, sober, clean and sober from drugs, and they got a couple of pit bulls, which is really cool to go from I was serving them sack lunches and hot meals on Sundays to now they're living in the house, and I get to watch them grow mentally and spiritually sober. Yeah. Yeah, that is. It's a... Uh... As I say time and time again, to watch the lights come on in people's lives and to be able to make some kind of improvement, no matter how incremental, sometimes it's huge, sometimes it's not. Right. But to make an impact in uh, in the lives of others is really, uh, that is the keystone of uh, of of, every, of my recovery. Right. And, and I know it is yours, too. Uh, so on Sundays, you do a thing called the Fab with Faith Ministry where they actually go out and take meals to homeless. Yeah, we, we, we just take meals and we'll take supplies, blankets, jackets, clothes, whatever, out to people staying at camps. We'll, uh, if someone gets into housing off the streets and they get into an apartment through the housing homeless coalition, we'll serve them, give them food boxes, which is like canned goods and stuff, dry goods for six months just to help them kind of get up on their feet a little bit until they can get their own ball rolling. All right. So in those cases, that's actually food that they would prepare themselves. You're giving them supplies to be able to eat. Yeah. And then also, at another piece of it, if I'm not mistaken, is where meals are actually provided, where you all actually take sack lunches or right or meals and out. Some, some of those people to, depend on that stuff. They go to work and they depend on those sack lunches and those hot meals. So your background looks like uh, similar to when you're an alcoholic and able to help another alcoholic because you've been there, done that kind right. of thing. The fact that you've been homeless and have lived that lifestyle in the past uh, lends yourself to be able to actually touch these people because you can tell them I've been there too. Yeah, and that's what I tell the guys on Monday. When we open up our day day room f for the homeless shelter on Mondays, it's funny because the majority of the people that utilize our services are black. And I was raised to be really racist. I was real, uh, what do you call it? Uh, where you're like anti-gay, but I'm working working a good program of AA and dealing with these people in my day shelter. It's working on my racial tendencies. I don't say the N word anymore, and it's just it just naturally changed. It's like I'm getting to know people. I'm building relationships. I can name everyone by name and tell you what sizes of pants they need. I can tell you <laughs> what they need. And that's it's, fantastic. It's and it's get to be a beacon of hope. The majority of them are actively using and drinking, but the good thing is, is I get to get to be a beacon of hope. Like we had one guy that was staying in a band of minium on Twenty Fourth and Broadway. He finally chose to uh, go to detox and get sober and come to the house. He got tired of doing that that uh, synthetic marijuana, and he came to the house, and I was. He was wanting me to sponsor him, and I was going to try to, but he wasn't there for the right motives, evidently, because the day at 28 days sober, and the day before he got his disability check, he chose to leave the house and go get high. Yep. And now he's sitting in jail, and 
it sucks, but well, that's a natural course of things. And uh, as as uh, you've spoken here tonight, and everybody that I've had on the microphone, and most everybody, I mean, now and again we run into somebody that's an exception to this rule. But it takes multiple chances and multiple tries at getting this thing. It does. And uh, what it takes, I, we, you know, if we could come up with that magic formula, that'd be great. But but it just one thing we can do is continue to support people, and when they when they fall back into the grips of the addictions and that kind of stuff, uh, let them you know uh, let them right. go do what the consequences they have to absorb for that, and maybe it'll be enough next time that they will you know really want want to yeah. want to do this again you know and and um, I heard somebody say uh, why and I and I've only really met one person that said this and 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 I know a few people I think that actually came into recovery you know it's the multiple attempts back before we were really trying you know when you sit in your living room and said I'm done with this or wherever you happen to be you know and then we actually get to where a point where we actually ask for help right you know we go maybe to a detox center or we come to some meetings or we do something where we actually take some action to actually get help rather than just sit on the couch and say I ain't doing this tomorrow yeah. Um, those actual attempts is where usually where that's where we start seeing people. And I heard a guy say once I was, he said he shared, he was a one chip wonder. You know, hey. he got a one silver chip. He got a 24 hour chip and, and walked down the path of sobriety and recovery and, and got it the first time through the gates. Uh, and, but, but most of us don't, most of us are like no. your friend who have to go back and suffer some more consequences before, uh, the before the miracle happens you know yeah. we say, keep coming back until the miracle happens the little cliche sayings we have um so now you're in this recovery uh house and and uh you do a little work for the house in multiple different ways as far as intake and when people new yeah, people come yeah I, I do client intakes and i do drug tests make sure the guys are staying clean and sober i'm more of a more of a uh you are really the sober example they get to see on yeah. a regular basis about what recovery can be for somebody right so you play a role there without even i'm kind of like a mentor to. to them it's like they can come to me and talk to me about anything if they choose to if i can help them in any way i can i'll do it whether it's financially if they need cigarettes i'll help them do whatever but uh they always know to come to me and I also do a lot of the maintenance work around the house, the plumbing work, and now I'm able to uh, reach out and solicit help on getting stuff done around the house financially and physically when there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done. So now it's pretty well. I'm trying to drum up contributions I'm and the, things yeah. like that to try and. I'm the go-to guy. I, I, I'm pretty well running the house. I've seen Gene sub post on Facebook that it's someplace around $10,000 a month to operate the house. Yep. And uh, that's a lot of money. It is. Um, so I know another thing is uh, you're how many days off of nicotine now? 117, I think. 117 days off of nicotine. So that's uh, there's a magic mark in a lot of things, and that's a 90-day mark or a 100-day mark that we get by. Uh, if you want to talk about it a little on that. No, I was just going to talk about the nicotine and another way that I've used the uh, the skills I've learned in recovery so far is I've lost 53 pounds in 10 weeks. I was going to talk which, about that uh, too. Which food, food is a horrible addiction. Just it's uh, To me, I think it was worse than alcohol. I never realized it, but it was harder to kick than alcohol. Yeah, because uh, you know from your wreck and, and that, you've got a lot of physical injuries. And today you're walking with a cane here today. Yeah. Uh, and you went to a doctor and went to multiple doctors and stuff, but it sounded like, if I remember right, there's one doctor that kind of hit you and yeah. with some truth. 
Yeah, and uh, said something about what he say. I mean, uh, he said lose. He he, he, he said that insurance wasn't going wasn't going to allow anyone to do anything to me until I lose 130 pounds. Yeah, and that you were madder in hell for a minute. Yeah, it was. And then but, uh, and then you grabbed a hold of you know you had some people around you that had been doing it. And it's it's kind of funny how uh, a group of guys we start there's a, there's a particular group of us that meet on tuesday nights and and we have a, a tech a, a chat group that we talk on a, on our you know online while we're fooling around and we got into a little healthy eating thing and and you was already starting down that path uh you started out at how much 300 and 375 pounds yeah and you're where now 332 yeah so that's 50 or 322 okay so that's 50 something pounds now yeah. yep. that you've lost in 10 weeks three pounds yeah, so well on your way down that path. Uh, that's another thing that's going to be in your story, you know. I mean, we uh, uh, over and over again say, you know, we. And I heard some friends of ours say this same terms, and I will tell them, uh, you know, and I will freely admit that everything I say is stuff I picked up someplace else. Yeah. Uh, none of this stuff is Dan's things, but uh, bullet wounds and paper cuts, and we have these bullet wounds of of drug and alcohol use that we have to get to the side before we can start working on these other things that are that are still yet problematic. So I don't want to say that they're not like they're like scratches that they're inconsequential, but because eating was going to kill you. And so was smoking. Oh yeah. And uh, so, but we can't really do those. We can't really tackle those problems because those weren't the bullet wounds. We get them out of the way, and then we start looking at these other things that are right. going on in our lives. And and for me, on a personal level, what happened was that once I started getting the big things out of the way, I started going, hmm, maybe you know, and the the, little, the things that were less, they weren't as important when I was drinking. All of a sudden, raise up in a priority level of things I need to take care of. Right. So as I walk down this life of 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 improvement and quality of my life in recovery. I have to start setting down things that aren't good for Dan. And I'm not saying they're good, not good for somebody else. Mm. I'm just saying for Dan, these things, I have to start putting them down. And the magic of the thing is, is that I start putting down the things that are not good for me, that good things start filling those holes if I allow that. You yeah. know? So I start getting these, these, these the vacuum be, is filled with positive things in my life. And what I've noticed about the whole, whole everything that I'm doing is that I, I I had to get to the point where I could love myself enough to be able to change in all these areas in life. And then after I learned how to love myself that much, and that's that's where the homeless outreach, opening up the day shelter, I love my people. And that's what I call them. They're my people. I, when, when I go do homeless outreach on Sundays, we don't get a lot of donations very often. Wintertime, it usually does pick up, but right now it's really slow. But I make sure that the people that come in and utilize our day shelter, the homeless people, I make sure they at least get a little bit of something. You know, it's because if not, they're going to be forgotten and they don't have no services down there. Yeah. Yeah, I can really find myself uh, wanting to discount that segment of society because I don't have any uh, any experience there. And, and, you know, and I'll just be honest at another level is, uh, is that like when you asked me to sponsor you and from the backgrounds you had, I had no idea how to do that. Right, I, you know, there was some fear welled up in me right off that I don't know how to do this, <laughs> and uh, and I talked to my sponsor, and he's you know, and he tells me you know we we just we just take people through the steps, you know, we we do the same tools with everybody, no matter where their background is, and uh, and it, and and your example, and uh, uh, one of the one of the biggest examples to me of that these steps work, <laughs> and they work great no matter where you came from, right? Right. Uh, I know you're going to be, you know, I just, and everybody in the group continues to talk about Quentin and how, uh, 
how big an impact he's had so far in in a short amount of time. Because what your sobriety dates in June, June twentieth. Yeah, June. So we're uh, September. Over. So sixteen months. I think you said months. that earlier. You know, in a short amount of sixteen months, you've had a huge impact in your community already. You know, yeah. and, and people we we see. Uh, a certain lineage of, of people who are working this program and lineage, I mean like a way, uh, all the, the particular way we work the steps, uh, steps work no matter what, but there is some optimized ways and we see people get a tremendous amount of recovery in a short amount of time and start doing like really big stuff uh, yeah. in early recovery where, you know, a lot of guys hit one year, they're really not even out of the woods yet, right? And we're finding guys who are hitting the one year mark that are actually have real traction in recovery. Right. Uh, they're they're making an impact, you know, and and um, and and that is just that is just beyond my understanding. Uh, I know I just love to be a part, continue to be a part of it. Um. So, uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to talk about tonight, or you want no, to like maybe hit some closing everything. closing thoughts, or uh, maybe where maybe maybe some things like maybe what's on the horizon, some things you're wanting to maybe. To, to to go after or uh Only maybe thing you're I just know. doing this thing day at a time and letting things happen or i just go a day at a time because uh with my physical ailments right now i'm not able to do too much but i do more than what i expect what i think i can do and that's a cool thing about going one day at a time is i'll sit there and say i'm gonna do this but i end up doing usually twice as much more physically and it's changing but uh the word can't is not in my vocabulary anymore when someone That's tells me sure. they can't they can't lose weight they can't do this i'm proof that because i used to say i can't lose weight because i couldn't exercise i was physically unable to exercise but now here i am 53 pounds down in 10 weeks i love it when people say they can't quit smoking because uh i didn't granted i had chantix to help me with it but it was still hard. I fell off the wagon. Yeah, you had over a hundred days of quit nicotine, I, and then I had you like five went back to smoking. And then I went back to smoking. And again now you're back. Yeah, yep. now you're back climbing back up it again because you weren't going to give up. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Quentin is a guy that I use as an example because uh, you know, we get these people in recovery, and 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 when I hit somebody that has a can't attitude, uh, you're my go-to. Right. Because I go. If that guy is where he's come from and doing what he's doing, don't you give me any excuses because we get the deals, you know, the don't have enough money. Well, you know, I can hold you up as a shining example of a guy that money did not matter about recovery. It had no impact. The fact that you're virtually broke all the time, right? You don't have any income, zero income. Uh, but somehow or another you're able to get through and 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 make it and and you're always you know you're one of these guys that got a smile on your face your attitude is just like golden uh beyond my understanding and and the same thing like if somebody you know from a number of different ways man i get to point at quentin and say hey you got no room to complain uh now if you're complaining and you're in a mental funk that's got you in a depression mode it's all up to you 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 can change your situation my main my 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 idea would be get out of yourself, go physically hands on down in down in the dirt, get hands on and do some service work. Help somebody less fortunate and I guarantee you you'll get out of your mental funk. Right. Uh that is the way that Quentin participates in his recovery. 
uh, every day is, is to uh, put dive full wholeheartedly into service work. Uh, so you want to? I got one more thing I want to say because I'm gonna start maybe closing this podcast with a certain thing because it, it really touched me. And uh, you got any closing thoughts besides that? Nope. Cool, well, man. I really appreciate you coming and sitting down with us today. Uh, like I said, you've been a huge, um, huge influence on my recovery and what recovery can do. Uh, so that Jordan Peterson is a guy I listen to. Or he's getting a lot of traction, and he has this little sentence, and I like to steal it and use it. He says, "I don't know what happens to a person when they bring themselves completely into alignment." And uh, that's that true north alignment that he that in my mind when I hear him say that. Now, the thing that I'll pick apart a little bit is, is that completely. I don't know what it means to be completely in alignment, but he goes on to say, uh, but I have had intimations of what that might mean. And as we do these things and we bring ourselves closer and closer into the alignment that higher power has for us, you get to experience these things like Quentin has been experiencing in his life and what I've been experiencing in my life. And that's all due to 12 step recovery and a fellowship that we've been able to, uh, uh, that no, a fellowship that has grown up among us as the last paragraph in that big book says, uh, he will help you create the fellowship you crave. I never knew it was fellowship that I was craving. I thought it was booze and alcohol and other things. What I really was craving is this life of service, this life of fellowship with my brothers, and walking hand in hand, helping other people uh, get up off the ground. You agree with that, Quentin? Hell yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you very much, man. I love you. And, love you too, uh, man. Thanks for coming by tonight, and thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>